During the past three weeks, we have been looking at how Paul spoke the truth before governors Felix and Festus, King Agrippa and Bernice, and the rest of the royal court. And we were considering in, this, in that little three-part mini-series that we were doing there about speaking truth to power, we were considering what do we need to learn and how do we need to apply these truths into our interactions with people, whether they're in people in power, people in positions of authority, whatever it may be, or maybe not even in those, but how do we interact with people? What should we learn from Paul's example so that we can speak truth in love to all situations. We are now in the final two chapters of the book of Acts. And as we've gone through chapters 1 through 26, we've learned much about the early church, and we have learned much about the ministry of the apostle Paul. Now here in Acts 27, this is approximately 27 years after Paul's conversion. So almost 27 years after that incident on the road to Damascus, the Apostle Paul is on his way to Rome. And about three years before this journey, Paul had written his epistle, his letter to the believers, the church, in Rome. But he had never been to the city. God had told him, you will go to Rome. You will stand before the kings. You will, you will testify about me. And so here he is now, 27 years later, about to go into Rome, or beginning this voyage, this journey to Rome. Paul is also in the final few years of his life. The book of Acts ends by saying that Paul was in Rome for two years. Historians, they suggest that after those two years, Paul was freed for about three to four years possibly, then he was imprisoned again, and then ultimately he was beheaded in, in Rome. So this is now the last few years of Paul's life. He has a sense for that himself. He's already talked about that. He knows where the Lord is leading him. But we're coming to these last few years of Paul's life. And in particular here, he is now making his way to Rome. So with that as the backdrop, let's read, starting in Acts chapter 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lacia. 
Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the day of atonement and storms would come. This was the time of storms on the sea. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed the lee of a small island called Kauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes onto the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you, would have had, then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the Lord, of the, of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow, then uh, from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, "Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved." So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach, where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. 
cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and, as he put it on the fire, a viper, drown, dr driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snakes hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. Now, you can follow Paul's voyage to Rome on this map up here on the screen, moving from right to left on this map, and it's given in great detail, but you can be able to follow it because of Luke's vivid first-hand account of what happened. I mean, he gives so many details, and he's describing every single thing that happened and what the sailors did and what the soldiers did. I mean, you, you, you realize that this was such a dramatic event. This was so, so deeply embedded in his mind that he's writing about it later with this kind of detail. But when you look at this, when the ship arrived, so we start at the bottom there, or when you start out here in Judea, and then Caesarea goes to Sidon, the ship over there, and then it's moving over to Myra Road, Snidus, and now it's over here, and this map says Fair Heavens, it's actually Fair Havens, but it's made port there, and when the ship was arrived in Fair Havens, which despite its name was not a suitable place to face the rigors of winter, Paul felt it was not safe to venture out you know, to, to try to find a better place. So most likely, this advice that he gave was given through a combination of Paul's hearing from the Lord and his own wisdom. He doesn't get some of the details right. He says, you know, there's going to be a loss of life. That didn't happen. But he has a sense that there's danger, that they should not venture out from fair havens. And so... And by the way, we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, that Paul was a seasoned traveler. He had already been shipwrecked three times. He had spent a night and a day in the open sea. So he knew what he was talking about when he says, 
you know, I don't think this is a safe thing. I, I, th I see what's happening with the weather and the, the ship and everything. I don't think we should venture out. But he's overwhelmed by the majority, and they decide to go a short distance further west, you know, just to Phoenix. They're, they're just trying to move from here to here, to Phoenix. And then they, were, they, were, they decided that that little journey there, four miles west, about 34 miles northwest, across a bay, that's where they could find harbor and ride out the winter or stay through the winter. Instead, they get swept out to sea and they spend 14 tempest-tossed days on the open sea before finally running aground in this tiny little island of Malta. So they're all over here 14 days and they end up here in Malta. By the way, there has been a lot of research done on this. There have been a lot of studies done and they have very conclusively shown that this, is, this scenario that is described here in Acts 27 could happen exactly as described. The way the storms come, the way that you could be blown around by the, by the wind, the way that the sailing and the sandbars and all of that. So this is what is happening in this voyage to Rome. Now, when we were studying Luke, and in particular Luke chapter 7, we read about Jesus healing a God-fearing Roman centurion's servant. The centurion said, you know, my servant is sick. Jesus says, I'll come. The centurion says, you don't even need to come, just speak the word. Jesus says, well, great faith. The centurion's servant is, is healed. We also saw how Jesus raised a widow's only son from the dead. And we saw how Jesus forgave or restored an adulterous woman. Now I pointed out that in each one of those interactions, Jesus did something that was different than what people expected. He responded to submission and humility from the Roman centurion, not to perceived worth or position authority that he would have. He responded to the submission and the humility of the centurion. He showed compassion to the widow in the midst of grief and lost hope. No one had any hope that this son would be raised from the dead. And then he redeemed and set free this adulterous woman instead of condemning and judging her. So he, ex he acted in ways that were completely different from what the people were expecting would happen in each one of those scenarios. Now, in our lives, we get disappointed or frustrated with others when they don't live up to our expectations. But our expectations are often formed through ungodly beliefs, incomplete or inaccurate information, and faulty logic. Or we could have expectations that are Valid. But here's the thing. When we are disappointed, when we don't have our expectations met, Jesus resets our expectations. Jesus not only resets our expectations, he redeems our expectations. He brings good out of it, or he shows what is good in it. But he forces us, Jesus forces us to ask whether our expectations of ourselves, of other people, and of our circumstances are actually God-directed and biblically founded. How did we come up with this expectation? Was it God-directed? Was it biblically founded? And the Holy Spirit 
enables us to crucify, to put to death our own desires and instead set godly expectations about others that is based on humble and clear communication, forgiveness and acceptance, and love that is patient and kind. So that's what Jesus does to move and work in our lives. This morning, I want to extend that question about our expectations of others to consider what are our expectations for ourselves and the seasons of our lives. Especially when we feel that we have been obedient and faithful to God. What is the expectation that we have? Especially if you feel, I have done all that the Lord has asked me. I have been faithful, I have been obedient. What do you expect will happen next? Maybe not just, you know, and what will happen next in 10 years time? What will happen at the end of my life? What will happen at the end of this season of my life? What is your expectation? And when I say this, I want to sort of let you know where I'm going by saying our lives don't always go the way that we expect. Paul has been obedient and faithful to God for 27 years years. He's so confident. I mean, we talked about this when he's speaking to the, to the rulers. I mean, he's very confident that he has done what was right before the Lord, that he has lived his life according to what the Lord called him to, that he has fulfilled the calling and purpose that God had for him when he intervened directly on that road to Damascus. And Paul had suffered significant hardships, hardships for the sake of the gospel. Right? Now, his ministry is winding down. He's heading to Rome just as God said he would. You would think he must have been ready for a smooth sail into the sunset. I've kept the faith. I've done all that I've needed to do. God told me I'll go to Rome. Here's a nice big ship. Smooth sailing. Right? And the last thing you would expect or that you would wish for him would be a raging tempest and a shipwreck. And then, even after he's saved from the sea, he gets bitten by a snake. You go from bad to worse. From the frying pan into the fire. Literally, at the fire, right? Here comes the snake. How would you react? How would you react if after 27 years of being faithful, of being obedient, of being consistent in the presence of the Lord, of having this confidence that I have done what the Lord has asked me to do, if this happened to you, what would you say? Thanks a lot, God. This is exactly what I was hoping for. This is not what the golden years are supposed to look like. The promise of retirement bliss in our old age is that in our old age we would enjoy the benefits of compounding interest, not compounding sorrow. We're looking forward to having all of the pleasures that are now due to us. And our missed expectations are not just for the final chapter of our lives, like I said, it could be for any season of our lives, but our education, our careers, our stay, our living in a specific location, our ministry, the assignments that the Lord has given us as we come to the end of the season of those things, or as we come to the close of some chapters, we look at it and we say, ah, 
I don't see things going the way that I thought they would. And when things don't go quite the way we expect, we may be prone to say, Lord, I thought my life was supposed to go from glory to glory. Even if there are some momentary troubles, I thought that if I was obedient and faithful, then the next season of my life or my latter days would be full of peace and rest. That I would be surrounded by people who love me and care for me. My old age would be filled with tranquility, answered prayer, abundant fruit. Instead, my marriage, my children, my career, my ministry, my finances, my church, my circumstances, and even my relationship with you, God. Not quite going the way that I expected. What's going on? There's no hint in this passage that Paul complained about what was happening. It doesn't, it, there's no record of him saying, oh, you know, yeah, okay, storm, but 14 days, God, you know, couldn't it have been two days? We get the point, you know. No, no, he doesn't complain, doesn't say anything else. In fact, he rallies the soldiers, sailors, and the others. He provides wise counsel, and he hears from the Lord and shares a prophetic word for them, for their encouragement. And even when there's a poisonous snake hanging off his hand, he just nonchalantly shakes it off into the fire. No, no, nothing, no more drama. What gives Paul the ability to go through all that he does with the right expectations? How come he's not phased by this? You see, Paul, no matter what the circumstances were, he knew. He knew that God works all things together for our good and for his glory. In a couple of weeks, we will begin a new series on Sunday mornings studying the book of Romans. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 39, Paul wrote this to the believers that he was now journeying to go see, that he knew he would see when he got to Rome. But three years before, he had written this epistle, he had written this letter to them, and in Romans 8, 18 to 39, he said this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it 
patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then? What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through, through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, when Paul got to Rome, when he saw those believers there that he had written this to, he didn't need to tell them about storms, hunger, fear, shipwreck, or snakes. No. He told them how God led them to the tiny island of Malta when they had no plans at all to go there. He told them how Publius's father was healed of fever and dysentery. He told them how all the people on the island who had diseases were healed. He told them that even though they lost everything in the sea except their own lives, the Maltese people provided them with everything they needed. He told them how they stayed on the island for three months and ministered to the people. He told them of God's compassion and care for all people everywhere. He told them, do you remember what I wrote in my letter, I'm here to testify that it is true. All things work together for good. You know, I referred earlier to Luke 7 and how Jesus reset the expectations of the people about the centurion, the widow, and the adulterous woman. There was another person that was referenced in Luke 7 whose expectations had to be reset. And that was John the Baptist. 
John the Baptist sent word to Jesus to say, are you really the Messiah? Or should we look for another? Because Jesus didn't seem to be doing what he expected the Messiah to be doing. Jesus was not overthrowing the Romans. Jesus was not establishing his kingdom. Jesus was not the king. And John sent word. After all this time, he sent word and he said, are, 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 you, are you the Messiah? Because my expectations are not being met. My expectations are not being met. Jesus pointed out, and he said, go tell John. Go tell him what you see. And he said, I am establishing the kingdom of God on earth. It doesn't look like what you expected. It doesn't feel like what you wanted. It doesn't seem to conform to your expectations. But I am establishing the kingdom of God on earth. John didn't live long enough to see Jesus on the cross. John didn't live long enough to see Jesus after his resurrection. John was beheaded for continuing to speak truth to power. But once his expectations were set right, John started to tell people what he had always told people. Look to Jesus. Look to him, the Lamb. Don't look to me. Jesus must increase, and I, John, must decrease. I, John, was baptizing in water, but he, Jesus, will baptize in the Holy Spirit and with fire. And though he was imprisoned, even though he couldn't even see the consummation of what had been prophesied, what he himself was prophesying about the Messiah, John is able to tell the people, all things work together for good. You know, when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers who had sold him into slavery, he didn't need to tell them about false accusations, imprisonments, and suffering. No, he said to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives, all things work together for good. You know, when Naomi held Ruth's baby in her arms, she didn't tell the people how her family suffered in the famine in Israel and fled to Moab, how her husbands and sons died in Moab, how she returned in bitterness and destitution to Israel. No. When Naomi held that baby in her arms, she told them how the Lord had brought a daughter-in-law, Ruth, who was better to her than her own sons. Naomi told the people how the Lord brought Boaz as a kinsman redeemer. Naomi told the people how the Lord had given her a legacy and a future. Naomi told the people, all things work together for good. Ah. Paul, John, Joseph, Naomi, Countless others in the Bible and throughout history can say it's not that all things are good. Many things in our lives are bad. We're suffering, we're going through pain, we're going through real tribulation. It's not that all things are good. And they may never get better in our lifetimes. We may die before we see any 
relief from this. It may be that we suffer for the sake of the gospel and that we die. But we have this confidence. We have this confidence that all things, good, bad, shipwrecks, snakes, all things work together for the good that God has ordained for the purpose that God will fulfill and for the glory of God. Which means that the only way that we can respond and apply this word is to say, Oh Lord God, I need to set my expectations in you and in your word. Not in my thoughts, not in my desires, not in my plans, not in my dreams, not in my ambitions. Not for myself, not for my children, not for my church, nothing. I cannot set my expectations based on what I think. I need to set my expectations in you, in your word, in your promises. And if you told me I'm going to get to Rome, it doesn't matter I'm being blown on the sea for 14 days. If you told me that I will get to Rome and not a hair on my head will be harmed, it doesn't matter that there's no more food on the boat. Oh, if you told me that I'm going to get to Rome, it doesn't matter that I'm sitting in Malta. Everything, everything that you have ordained, everything that you have intended, it will work together for good. What is concerning you today? What is the anxious thought for you today? Marriage? Is it your marriage? Your children? your job, your future? Are you anxious and fearful about what will happen? And maybe, maybe everything is calm right now, but you're afraid there's a tempest coming. Or maybe you're going through the tempest right now. Right now, this day, this morning, you're saying, oh, the storm is a raging. All your dreams and desires have they been shipwrecked, run aground? Have you lost all that you had? And just when things started to look up again, just when things looked like there was a glimmer of hope, there has been some new attack, some new suffering. Just when you were out of the storm and warming yourself by the fire, onto your hand there's that snake. And you say, oh my God, oh my God, what do I do? This Wednesday during our sermon discussion and then during our Q&A session on Saturday, we're going to talk more about this. And I encourage you, ask the questions. Talk about, let's, let's talk about what is the practical ways in which we need to look at this and apply this and go after this. But this morning, I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. I want to remind you. Cast your cares on the Lord because he cares for you. Trust in the Lord. Ask him to transform your expectations. Your circumstances may not get any better. Your circumstances may not get any better. That's an encouraging word, isn't it? You may be in the middle of it and you just don't see how this is going to change. 
But I ask you, I challenge you, go to the Lord and say, Lord God, change my expectations. What am I expecting? That I'll be happy, happy, happy? God, make me holy, holy, holy. Change my expectations. What am I expecting? That everything will be great? Everybody will be friendly to me? No one will have an unkind word? Every car on the road will just move aside when I drive? <laughs> what am I expecting? What am I expecting? Think about it. In big and small ways, in every area of life, you have an expectation. Some things may be good expectations. Some expectations are from the Lord. Some expectations have come to you because you know you waited on the Lord and the Lord said, this is what you should believe for. But some expectations are not from the Lord. They've come from your external circumstances. They've come from your past. They've come from the people around you. They've come from social media. They've come from some other source. They haven't come from God. And this morning, if things are going contrary to your expectations, I want to challenge you that you would trust your loving Heavenly Father who cares for you and loves you and provides for you and transforms you and restores you and is with you so that as you trust Him to set your expectations in Him, you will be able to confidently say all things work together for good. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We worship you, Lord, that your word, oh Lord God, you speak to us and you give us these wonderful examples of what it means, Lord, to set our expectations in you alone. Father, I thank you that whether we go through hardship or suffering, Lord, we can look to you. We can expect only good from you. And Father, whether we see that good in this earth or not, whether it is only when we are in heaven that we may ultimately see the good, I thank you, Lord, that you will give us the strength to bear it, to go through it, to understand it. Lord, to wait patiently. Father, I thank you that most importantly, no matter what we're going through and whatever missed expectations we have had, whatever wrong expectations we have set, I thank you, Lord, that nothing that comes against us, nothing that comes against us can separate us from your love. Lord, your love triumphs over judgment. Your mercy, your love, your kindness, your compassion preserves us when, Lord, we are about to fall. Lord, your promises hold us when we are in the midst of the sea. Oh, Lord God, I thank you that nothing, nothing separates us from your love. And so, Lord, we pray that you would cause our minds to be transformed, would cause our thinking to be different, would cause our beliefs to be godly, and would cause us to stand on the sure foundation of your word, so that, Lord, we may join with Paul, with Joseph,
with Naomi, oh Lord God, with John the Baptist, with so many countless others, we may join with them and we say, oh, all things work together for good. We trust you and believe you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.